Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast which does exactly what it promises. I find a very interesting guest and I put them together with a very interesting restaurant and we go and sit in the restaurant. I order loads of food, maybe a bit of booze if that's what they like, and I get them to talk. And they do talk uh, because over a restaurant table, well, that's the right place to tell stories. This week's guest is the brilliant writer, comedian and actress. It's Ashling B. When we were doing the scene in This Way Up where we had to have two potato waffles, the props department bought 10 boxes of potato waffles and they said, oh, do you want to bring the rest of these home? And we were like, what? Really? We've really made it. And so we both got all of these boxes. And do you know what? That was a great day. For this episode of Out to Lunch, Ashling B made a very specific request. She asked that we come to um, a restaurant called the Brigade Bar and Kitchen, which is, I, I think you'd call it a social enterprise. Um, it's a, it is a restaurant, it's a commercial restaurant. They do breakfast, lunch, dinner. Um, they work with a charity called Beyond Food to enable people who have experienced homelessness or, or in desperate times to get jobs, to get training, to get apprenticeships and to get back to work. Um, and I thought that was a very, very good idea. So let's get inside. Hello. Welcome Hello. to the ballroom. <laughs> Hi, Jay. The, the seating arrangements are slightly odd because the table is so huge. Yes, yes, so I requested that. I want a very, <laughs> yeah. very large table so you were at least <laughs> yeah. five feet away from me. Exactly. In and the current climate, that's what I have to do with all men, unfortunately. Oh, no, that's fair enough. No, I understand, <laughs> and I'm, I'm um, absolutely willing to sit this far away. I feel like I know you, Jay, because... Tell me. Well, I don't really get... I was going to say fanny, but that's the wrong word. Um, if you want to start using words fanny. like fanny uh, this early... <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I start using that word as soon as I wake up <laughs> in the morning. Um, fan, fan-like about anything. And some people are like, oh, what's it like to work with so-and-so? And I'm like, they're just another person. But I love cookery shows. Oh. I, that's my thing that I love, as long as it's a competitive element. I don't like when people are there to be friends or something like no, that. No, they've actually got to be trying to kill each other through yes, the exactly. medium of of, of a sort of fondant or something like that. So I love MasterChef, and my thing when I cook is to put on a cookery show. And so I watch all of them, the American ones, the UK ones, so I feel like I've watched you a million times. Do you do um, a mental kind of voiceover while you're cooking? When I'm Ashling doing it, Ashling is, is, yeah. Ashling is making a, a she's fish She's shut tube. up the toast once again. This is going to count against her in the end results. And then I sit down with myself and, go, and give myself a review. Yeah, I, that's just me talking to myself over dinner. By the way, you once said that before lunch you get hangry. Yeah, I was thinking are about you, that on the way in. kind of on the edge? Did yeah, you have breakfast yeah, yeah, or not? Yeah. I hate food waste more than anything in the world. And I think it's one of our great sins collectively as a society, as people, that we just throw away food. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sacrilegious. But then what happens, because I have that, like I have like a warlike mentality that my granddad have was like, don't throw anything out. And so this morning I had three phyllo pastry spinach rolls that I Because they were in the fridge and they were night. left over. Yeah. I know it's not a healthy breakfast, but I was like, I won't want to eat them later. Do you want a statistic? Please. We waste 7.2 million tonnes of food a year. Now I'm definitely angry and hangry. And and it is enough 
to fill Wembley Stadium, the modern Wembley Stadium, to the brim seven times over. That disgusts me. And also what disgusts me... I'm just me, arming you with figures. Yes, yes. No, I love figures. Uh, they're my favourite things to throw at people when they try to say I'm wrong. One thing that particularly disgusted me was this law came out in France to say that supermarkets are no longer allowed poor bleach all over the f- uh, food that they throw into the bins at the end of the day. And that made me realise that people actually did that in the first place and the UK have hankered down on that and very much are allowing people supermarkets to throw bleach on all of the food in their dustbins to prevent people from rooting through the bins for food so what you have there is going we don't want it to look like people are rooting through our bins and we're also making life even more bloody difficult if you have to root through a goddamn bin for your food in the first place it's a good segue actually I like a segue as for you to explain why we're here because Mm -hmm. you're one of the very rare guests on Out to Lunch who actually ex- chose a restaurant. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Normally, they just say, um, we, we ask for, you know, are there any dietary requirements? Yeah. And they go, I, I only eat... Horse at midnight. Ho- horse yeah. that I've killed myself. <laughs> but you were very specific. You asked specifically to come here to the Brigade Bar and Kitchen. Why was that? Yes, or some kind of social enterprise. I, I strongly believe that when you've got a platform or you're privileged that you've no real excuse to not use that or, or as Bob Hope used to say, send the elevator back down. Um, I first came across the Brigade, which is where we're eating now, which is a social enterprise. So social enterprises are businesses, which are still businesses. They're there to make a profit, but they give back in some way. So here uh, is a place that... um, trains up people to be chefs uh, who might have been sort of pushed out of the employment sector. Um, I started working with Social Enterprise a couple of years ago when I hosted their awards and the brigade here catered all of the food and it was oh, right, absolutely okay. delicious. So that's how I found this. Well, excellent. Well, we've got a menu. This is Amanda who will be serving us today. Hello, Amanda. How are you? I met you downstairs. What, what are you thinking? I wouldn't mind a few bits. I love little bits. There's wild mushrooms, garlic toast, and a soft egg. There's burrata. Mm-hmm. So why don't we get all the... Um, veggie bits. All the, ve- all the veggie bits. bits yes. and, and maybe a couple of fishy bits. So we go for that from the small plates. I definitely love some of the smoked salmon. Yeah, very good. Should we get and the then, wild mushrooms? Yes, please. The burrata? Yes, please. You want bread and butter? I do. The cauliflower? Yes, please. And then I wouldn't mind some of this old salsa verde, some of these little lads. You know these little... Yeah. And how about the house pickles as well? Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Pickles are sort of like um, the adult's version of, like, you know, cola bottle sweets with all the sugar on it. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like... (laughs) That sort of feeling, yeah. Brilliant. And what about drinks? I'm just going to have... Whatchamacallit? Um... Water. (laughs) (laughs) This is where my brain starts going free food. What you call? um, It's clear as day. It's not milk. Uh, It comes from a lake. Um, Water. Water. (laughs) Perfect. I'm going to stick with water as well. I will get everything on the way for you. Everything seems to have dropped into the public consciousness right now. You've got a series on Channel Four this Mm -hmm. way up. You've got something on Netflix. Living with yourself. Living with yourself. Yeah. They're very different things. Yes. Explain what This Way Up is to anybody who hasn't seen it. So This Way Up is my own show, what I wrote and produced, and I'm in, in what can only be described as a tour de force of the ego, (laughs) which is all available on all four 
now, which is a streaming service for Channel 4. And then it's also on Hulu, which is a streaming service in America. That is my show where that I made with Sharon Horgan's production company. Sharon Horgan, who made Catastrophe. Catastrophe. And she's been like a sister figure to me for probably a decade. We've been working together for a very long time. And is she actually better than your real sister? Uh, I will, won't say yes or no. <laughs> I had in so much trouble when I mentioned my sister. But my sister, my real actual sister, did the costumes for This Way Up. So she's a brilliant costume designer. Oh, well, that's... Um, but I remember when Sharon rapped on This Way Up, which was a couple of weeks before I finished, um, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm losing my sister. And Sinead was right behind. She's like, you know, I'm right here. <laughs> um, Living With Yourself is a show on Netflix which stars Paul Rudd and that was uh, written by Timothy Greenberg who was like a daily show writer for many years and directed by Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dainton who did like Little Miss Sunshine and Battle of the Sexes and they're their movies and for me that that symbolised maybe like a decade of just being an actor and always being either not in the room or down to the last two or they lie to you but sorry and finally something clicked in but they both happened at the same time and you can't say no to either. But I was writing this way up while filming very long hours in New York on the living with yourself job. So two dreams coming true. Were you able to enjoy this moment of success in Uh, real time? Or was there a bit of you standing outside going, oh God, what's going on? Very much that. I was so burnt out by the time I finished it. But the perfect way of describing it, there's been very little maybe real time because you're like, oh God, it's all happening. Like, like savor every moment, but also I have to sleep and do something tomorrow. So it's only now, things are winding down literally this week and I feel a little bit more. Oh, thank you so much. And a whipped butter. Indeed. I love it. Thank you so much. Because that's the complicated thing about what you do, which mm. is there's the work. Yes. Which and then and then there's the release of the work. Yes. And it's it's about which bit you enjoy. I mean, actually yeah. turning up on set. Do you like being love on set? I love being on set. My favourite thing was when I turned up for the first day of This Way Up and I realised I might even get emotional as I talk about it now. But to turn up on set and realise the the script I wrote on my computer in New York on Christmas Day being really sad suddenly had created jobs. There were trucks there because of the words that I'd written. There were people to do lighting and there were actors who were employed because I'd written something. And then we all got to work on it together rather than me. I'm not completely on my own. I have amazing Sharon as a producer. I'd, uh, Channel 4 are amazing. My producer and director are amazing. But it was an incredibly lonely thing to write so to suddenly have a crew and a team and I'd worked with loads of people before that was just like oh I'm not I work better in gang and team environments Mm -hmm. than on my own um so that was like one of the most special days I'm like oh my god there's a catering truck here because of me that has to feed the people who are here but that's and suddenly you also become less of a child that day that's the day you You have to be the grown-up yeah you're like oh I can't just go I don't feel like doing this scene me grumpy now you're like no you've everyone's turned up for work you turn up as well. It's and not the just a on. Yeah. We should explain it's it's about a woman who's just come out of well, rehab having had yeah. nervous breakdown. Yes, yes. So it kind of that's the opening scene, so that doesn't spoil anything. And then the rest of the series is sort of set probably about two months later. So not in the cusp of the storm, more in the aftermath of the rebuilding, I suppose. A lot of it's about loneliness. Yeah, very and much. And you've so. talked about being lonely, that you can be lonely in a crowd that 
Oh yeah. You'd be lonely with yourself. And I think loneliness to an extent is like air pollution, no matter how far up in the world or or how privileged or underprivileged your life is, you can have it or not have it or it can affect you or not affect you, but it's not um something that you can avoid. I bulk when people go how, how is Meghan Markle lonely? Look at everything she has. And you're like, mate, loneliness is something that's within us and it's not, there's no pill or amount of money that cures it. My mother always says that she just does not suffer from it. And it's not about being alone, it's loneliness. It doesn't look like any one thing. It doesn't look like your Christmas advert with the sort of lady with the dead cat sitting on a chair waiting for someone to ring the bell. So was it actually useful, do you think, to write it in a place of loneliness? You said sitting in a New York hotel. Were you literally in a New York hotel room on Christmas Day? I was in an apartment in New York on Christmas Day. What was lovely was on Christmas Day... I was in New York and Irish people, no matter where we go, I think it's, there's the the wound and the gift of being brought up in a monocultural, mono-religious society. And one of them is religion comes with community, bad or good. And the good side of it is an essential throw everyone into the pot. Um, whether that's the fiery pits of hell pot or the um, the collectiveness. So did you and get gathered up by people? Absolutely got gathered up. There is a bar in New York called the Hudson Hound on Hudson Street in New York, I've which I there. love. Oh, have you? So now to my, they threw me into their Christmas pot and... They have amazing real Irish food in New York. So they have the soda bread and proper Kerrygold butter and all this kind of stuff. And um, he cleared out the bottom of one of his restaurants and made with his chef Christmas Day food and threw everyone into a pot. We all did one secret Santa thing with people we didn't really know. It was very much like a sort of Shane McGowan song. That part of it was lovely. I think it was the after. I got absolutely hammered. I can't even look back at I saved all the videos to maybe one day look at that I uploaded to Instagram that evening. And I can't look at them because I'd be too embarrassed to be like, but I loved that element of scooping up people together. I'm not a Christmas person at all. Sarah Millican does it, I'm pretty sure. She, she does, does a tweet Twitter. along. Uh, uh, for yeah. all the people who are alone on Christmas Day. Yeah, because there's a diff- isn't there a difference? This is kind of why I hate it. There's all this expectation and there's a lot of pressure put on women, particularly around that time. In Ireland, they have on the 6th of January, Nulling the Mon, which is the Irish for Christmas of women. And it basically is a traditional thing where everyone gives the woman the day off <laughs> after a long month. I, it, it does become a slightly gendered pressure and expectation. Ooh, mm, are these pickles? Oh, brata, yes, mama. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. You tell us what you got. Yeah, they're with roasted cauliflower with black beans. Mm. And then we have the mushrooms on toast there. Oh, love it. They're both salsa verde. Thanks so much. Thank you. No worries. You've said a lot about women and Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Ireland is the weirdest kind of matriarchy. I yeah, think, yeah. In that Terribly th- disrespects us on so many levels. Yes, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've only just, you know, managed to get repeal the eighth, the yeah. bottom is through, and so forth. And very much only just in Northern Ireland as well. Your upbringing, and we have to talk mm-hmm. about this, uh, you've said you were raised by uh, eight aunts and a nun. Yeah. Because your dad died when you were three. Yes, he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so I had very little male influence in my life at all which I didn't know I didn't realize until it's like 
I remember watching a David Attenborough documentary. What was that one called? The Human One. The Human Planet. Yeah. Human Planet, where there's and if it this. It wasn't called that. We apologize. Yeah, there's this one group of people who mainly live in the water, and when they get onto land, still land, they tend to get the opposite of seasickness, which is um, being still sickness. And they don't. It's like they don't even realize they were wet until they go somewhere dry. And sometimes I feel like that about my childhood. I was brought up in an all-female house, almost in the middle of nowhere. Pretty in the middle of nowhere, all-female school up until the age of 18, no male teachers. Yeah, so I didn't know until I went to university. I just didn't know it you, wasn't you, a thing. And in many ways, my friend Katie talks about being brought up. She, Her dad's black and her mother's white. And she says that she sort of didn't know about race until other people started making her aware that she should feel less in some way which is obviously not right, but that's how she felt. And I don't think, but what happened was she grew up with a steeliness of her own sense of self, which she's incredibly grateful for. And I think I have the same thing. I'm like, oh, that you think I'm less is your problem, but I know it's not true. You said you didn't really have any experience of men until you got to university. You said, apart from kissing them. Yeah, and, and, and the rest. And the rest. Oh, she was great value. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But not I, as a group of people to work with. Did you not actually talk or, to any of these men you shag? Or, uh, mm, I'm sure there was. Sh- I, I remember them grimacing at, at my jokes, but putting up with it because I had nice boobs. And um, so I kind of was, I was like, listen, you don't get It's always one good to be appreciated. And that's still where it is. It's like, you don't get one without the other, lads. Um, so <laughs> I, yeah, but I had no experience of really en masse and also within what I wanted to do. So when I was at school, I wrote all the school plays. It was only like the funniest people in my school. Uh, that's almost empirical. So was there a league table of funny people in your uh, school? No, I had that? a little gang and we all loved people. I love other funny people. I'm not competitive about mm. it. I kind of forget as well that some people aren't funny because I'm surrounded by loads of funny people. I love it. It's, um finally having someone to play tennis with. It's a back and forth game. But we just like had joyful times and I never thought of them as like, God, isn't Grace funny for a girl or isn't Adele funny for... And the way she does it, but still manages to carry her boobs around at the same time. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I won this stand-up competition when I first started stand-up in Edinburgh and I was the first woman to win it in 20 years. And it becomes a thing and then I've learned to embrace it. But I also would like to talk about other things. And sometimes you're like, God, I'd love to be asked, like, as a first thing, what are your influences rather than like, is it hard being? And I think most female comics have that. But also then that'll happen naturally, probably for other comedians in in 15 years that it won't even be an issue, you know. So Ashley, what are are your influences? What are my influences? (laughs) Um, Massive one was Father Ted. I, I only had two TV stations growing up. Uh, the two Irish stations so we didn't get loads of stuff but the stuff we got we all watched and it's very rare for a whole country and I'd say until probably like maybe five years younger than me most Irish people have very similar cultural memories two stand-ups one was Tommy Tiernan and the other one was Deirdre O'Kane mm. um, so again half of the comedians I knew from telly were women so I just didn't realise 50%, 50, 50% of, of all stand-ups 50% must of all be women the yeah so Deirdre O'Kane was a huge influence on me and I loved her stand-up and I just felt like, oh, there's me. Were you doing theatre group stuff at Trinity? Yes. Were you doing stand-up? I what did. Were you doing? I was so blessed to be at Trinity and I didn't even know I was born because I didn't really have an inkling that I would go to university and then I got in. So you went to Trinity. It was mm. marvellous. Uh, you kind of got well, through. I did probably a play every three weeks for four years. 
um, I was in a pretty much um, male-dominated sketch group. And a lot of them had been ed- educated in private schools. And so I'd never heard of Monty Python. I'd never heard of sk- what a sketch was, really. I so did, did you just see my knife and fork go down? As you yes, said. I did. You it was, never it was, heard Jay drops his knife and fork in a dramatic fashion. But that's, uh, uh, I mean, such a deprived child. Well, here's uh, the thing. I grew up not only in um, a small country with yeah. only two channels on the television, which were very domestic Irish stuff, but also my mother is a retired jockey. And I only have one cultural rep. We grew up in the countryside. So all of my culture came from what I heard at school when I'd go in on the bus every day or what I learned from Ma- So if Mammy didn't know it, I didn't know it. And my first uh, big boyfriend at university, I remember his dad sat me down and, and said, I'm going to teach you who Johnny Cash is. And I'm like, fair enough. What was food like when you were growing up? Was your mm. mum a good cook or were, was, was the mum very gonna good? I'm not going to say she's a, a bad cook at all. But when you're a mother bringing up two kids on your own and you've got another job, it's a lot of freezer. And when the microwave came in, we were like, yes, please. But ate well and ate healthily. My sister has it as well. When we want something homely now, it's not like, oh, is it beef and Guinness stew? Is it soda bread? It's always yellow things from the freezer and breadcrumbs or potato waffles. I even put them into This Way Up, the show, as like a snack that someone's having on their way out. I love potato waffles so much and they're my favourite thing in the world I, my big plan is to try and bring them to America because they just for some reason haven't gotten on to do it. you have packets of potato waffles in your freezer at home right now at, yes at all times and also when we were doing the scene in this way up where we had to have two potato waffles uh, and my sister gets very blasé about like the industry and when we were doing the potato waffle scenes in this way up the props department bought 10 boxes of potato waffles because they never know yeah, how many uh, takes yeah how be. many takes is going to get take and it only required four potato waffles in the end. And they said, oh, do you want to bring the rest of these home? And we were like, what? Really? Jesus, Sinead, we've really made it. And so we both <laughs> got all of these boxes. And to the point where we had to eat them for ages because we didn't have enough freezer space. I had to leave two boxes in the fridge, which meant going through them quite quickly. Um, but it was a, that was a, do you know what? That was a great day. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. As a, as a stand-up, I've always, I've always been intrigued by stand-ups because I've always thought it's basically three-dimensional writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're being a writer. Mm-hmm. But you're, I'll pass you the salmon if you pass me the burrata and fix. Are you willing to let the burrata go? Mm-hmm. It's time I let this go. OK, I'll look after it, and then I might send it back to you a little bit depleted. Oh, thanks. Um, stand-up, the only way it really works, isn't it, is if you, you plunder your own life. I don't believe that you have to be depressed to be an artist. I don't believe that you have to be like Bob Dylan, have to be really sad to, to write all of his songs. I do believe you have to get in there into your stuff, but how much of you, you mine 
where you draw a line, I think, becomes important, especially when maybe one's life uh, becomes of, of interest in some way and not in a way you can control. You know, you, you've been able to mine your own life. The, yeah. There was brilliant material you used to do about um, because you lived somewhere where there was nobody, you would be a really fast talker mm. because if anybody passed by... Yeah, you'd be like, oh, my God, I do still think that. And, and I still spend so much time on my own in the house during the day quite a lot, especially when I'm writing, that honestly, Jehovah Witnesses have started avoiding my door because they're like, have you heard about Jesus? I'm like, no, tell me! Tell me everything, come in! Yeah, I do feel like I have an excess of English words. My, my brother-in-law, who's an astrophysicist, mm-hmm. used to invite, the, uh, invite them in to explain to them why God didn't exist. Oh, what a cheeky boy! He'd I hope the, they gave him as down. good as they could. He'd sit them down, make a cup of tea... Oh, I'd love to have heard that discussion. But say, for example, why comedy is never as good as it was in the room when you put it on TV. Mm-hmm. Because there's something between an audience, an energy, a frisson. I don't know what it is. But something in that room, it's, it's, it's uh, probably the dopamine, the serotonin between two humans who are close to each other. Uh, the volume of alcohol consumed by the, the audience. Absolutely. Loads of pints, which will be, um, uh, I'm sure... Uh, do you still do a pint coming. before going on? Oh, yeah. It's one of the few jobs that you can bring a pint to work and the people who've paid you to do your job see you drinking on the job and they're like, this should be good. Right. You know, but imagine getting on a bus and the bus driver having a big pint. You're like, yeah, where are you after? Where are you going? Should I drop you off there? And you're like, no, I don't know. But I mean, comedy is one of those things which like a pint is very much still allowed. Um, but it would, yeah. I think because you can spend too much time with your own head and you know you're good at your job, but some days you get in your own way. Some days you're like, I'm not funny. I'm not funny. I belong in, in drama. I belong being Medea eating her own children at the National. I'm not funny today. And, um, and sometimes just thinking it can be the difference between a great gig and a bad gig. And You've I, got to go on thinking you're funny. There's just something... You know if you go on a date with someone, or even if you're about to have sex with someone, that if you feel it, if you feel it, it's nearly always going to be better than if you don't. And I know there's obviously physiological bits to that as well. Mm. But like the, the, the free sore, the energy between two people, and sometimes you can't conjure that up. Um, but uh, there, there was a brilliant line in a... Uh, I think it was an American university um, freshers handbook... Mm-hmm talking about consent mm. and sex. Mm. And the line was, it said, don't in- engage in sex just because someone's given you consent. Mm. Hold out for enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, I love <laughs> and that. And I thought that was Hold absolutely brilliant. The consent is not yeah. the issue. The consent is not the issue. And then I suppose there's the days where I don't have enthusiasm and enthusiasm is all that's required. The craft of stand-up is not just writing your jokes, your material. It's on a rainy Wednesday when something bad has happened in your day. How do you make 600 people laugh when you're having a bad time yourself? How, do, how you, do you do that? To be honest, sometimes you just die in your arse or something goes off. And then other times it's about trying to find little things. Um, a pint helps. Um, I don't think about gigs now until about six or seven. Like some people are like, oh, where are you on tonight? I was like, I don't know. I'll check around six o'clock. Unless it's out of London where you have to do trains and stuff. So I'll write out my set list, bullet points. I'll normally try and throw something in that I want to talk about. I'll think about even if this works or if it doesn't, what do I want to what, talk about? What, you rewrite the set on Just the even night? At this, normally at the start. It's a start is getting into it. 
Um, so that's like putting on your sexy brand pants, I suppose. How do you feel joyful? Sometimes it can be like, sometimes I'll go onto stage wearing so many layers of clothes because I feel the need to be protected and I want to wear like, and then other Do you start days, taking them off as you, you know, if there's a, a, yeah, a cardigan? Yeah, I'll get, a, I'll get 600 people to kind of slowly make music for me and I'll slowly take off my clothes. With the amount of TV work you've got mm-hmm. on, is it hard to carry on as a stand-up to keep that those dates in? Bigger dates, yes. Well, I could tour. I also want to keep something for myself that's a bit creative and messy. And it's hopping onto gigs with pals, being unlisted, so there's no expectation of it being an Ashling B gig. Oh, all of my friends were promoters and bookers let you on. Um, And also I travel so much, so when I'm in New York or LA, I'll email a pal and kind of say, can I hop on your gig tonight for 10 minutes and try out some stuff? So some people say to me, like, oh, do you do stand-up anymore? You're like, yeah, every week. But, of course, it's not publicised. But that's been my... I've kept that for myself. And then there'll be a time when I go on tour where I can keep writing for myself and there's no pressure or a deadline. But to keep something messy and childlike, I think, is important. And like you were saying earlier on, you need to give yourself enough time to have something to talk about. Stand-up's very boring, when someone hasn't done anything and just talks about aeroplanes and fame. And fame. So we're recording as Christmas is emerging towards mm. us and you you did Christmas in New York. Mm-hmm. Any weird Christmas jobs you've had in your impoverished past? Very much so. Please yes. tell us. I um, and my best friend Brona, and we did two Christmases of this and I really don't know why. Um, it's one of my... Uh, great experiences that I'm still triggered by and have yet to get over. I worked as an elf in an industrial grotto in Ireland and it was, it's still to this day, one of the most harrowing things I've ever done. Industrial yeah. grotto? What do you so, mean by an industrial grotto? It was a big it department store? It was this thing store? called Santa's Kingdom. No, a department store would have been a walk in the park, Jay. This oh, was, was this some kind of Christmas land, it was, pop-up yes, Christmas land? pop-up Christmas land, but, like, the, there was no pop in it at all. It was, like, wildly constructed in a, in a huge sort of warehouse on a race course in Ireland, and it had different rooms, and you would be taken on a magical space shuttle all the way to the North Pole, in inverted commas, and then you would land into Santa's kingdom, where room by room, a, a large group of out-of-work actors will pretend to be a variety of elves... And we'd have the toy shop and there'd be uh, Mother Christmases. What's her name? Mrs. Claus's house. Mm. Mr. Claus. Oh, it was hell. And they were on five minute TikTok things. And then they go through again. Yes. So you'd have like a minute to get, 30 seconds to get them in, 30 seconds to get them out. In the middle, you had to do like a minor panto. And we would do those every five minutes for 12 hours a day with just in total an hour and a half of breaks. My friend Emer, her hand got bitten by a live reindeer. Um, the, obviously once one group stacks up there's a backlog of parents and children who all need to go to the toilet all the way back from Ireland so to the a, North Pole is there the gentle waft of small children At wetting themselves all times there's a gentle waft of vomit piss and poo and uh, dreams and um, uh, both the ones that the children have and the broken ones that the actors have. And then um, my first year, I was working as an elf in the toy shop and I had to do a song. And the Did actor, you have to do that voice for 12 hours? Yeah, for 12 hours I had to do that voice. The second year round, they changed the format slightly. And that year, it was still quite hellish. My friend Brona at one point, because they were low on elves, she had to run around at one stage to try and get to her next tour, who are waiting, 60 kids. And she fell over, vomited, and then had to get up and go straight and go, hello, boys and girls, welcome. 
welcome to the tour as her I think her name was Bobby the Elf and um, take them on a tour so anyways we'd get to the end of the tour where the big white uh, snow witch or whatever she was called would go give me all of your wishes children and every single and we'd all have to throw our wishes into her net to make them come through and that's the last thing you do before you go and meet Santa and I'd always go I wish this place would burn down I wish it would all burn down so when you get to the Santa Claus bit there is essentially 12 Santa Clauses there all behind a door but you tell the children now if you're really clever you'll open the right door and there'll be a Santa there and of course no matter what door they open there's a Santa Claus inside and then there were young lads on the roof and the Santa Claus is going well haven't you been a lovely little or girl and shout it up and the young lad from the town would either throw down a gendered toy which of course probably wouldn't happen now but it was a gendered toy now what happened one time was is that one of the young lads from the town fell through the roof on top of a Santa Claus which meant that the fire alarms went off in the whole warehouse and everyone had to be evacuated through the emergency doors out even though everyone had arrived on a magical shuttle and had been taken away from Ireland to the North Pole suddenly everyone just went out a fire door into the car park on this race course including all 12 Santas because the whole place had to be evacuated so suddenly all the elves were outside there were a couple of old Santas outside going oh just having their fag being like oh this is terrible now this is absolutely but they'd be half masters well. oh yeah they were like well the ones that hadn't grown their own from just sitting there all day <laughs> And they were like, oh no, it's a disgrace. We're treated like animals in here. And then all the children were in the car park screaming because they were seeing so many, they were like, ah! Because they were seeing so many Santa Clauses. I thought it was my fault because of all the wishes I'd been throwing into the um, uh, Snow Queen's oh, that's, net. That's full on Stockholm. Oh yeah, right? I was like, oh no, I did this. This was on me. Then, of course, it had been going on for so long and it was near enough to Dublin that RTE News came down to cover the event. Um... Uh, and we were told we weren't allowed to talk to the press. So that evening, uh, RTE covered it and we're like, today a shocking event has happened at the Santa's Kingdom thing. And they showed footage of all of these elves going, no comment, no comment. <laughs> we were all dressed as glittery elves and we were all so sad and depressed we couldn't see the funny side of it. And myself and my friend Brona still are like, how do we do it? So the amazing thing is, you did it two years. Two years in a row, because it was paid so well. Oh, right. It was paid well, but it wasn't, for mental health reasons, worth the money. We were the saddest elves you've ever seen. On the other hand, yeah. Ashling, material. Material. It's all material. It's all material, I suppose. Yeah, and listen, if I'd gotten my break at 18, maybe I wouldn't have had that to tell you today. <laughs> And now a word from our sponsor, which in this case is me. I've got a new book out. It's called My Last Supper, One Meal, A Lifetime in the Making, in which I attempt to answer the one question I've been asked most often, what would my last meal on earth be? I go out in search of the ingredients. It does include pig. And I tell the stories behind them. It's available now in hardback, ebook, and audio formats. And I'm also on tour with a live show based on the book. For tickets and info, visit jrayner.co.uk. And now back to Out to Lunch. Right, there's seasonal trifle. Oh, hello. There's pumpkin tart, walnut yeah. crumb, and maple ice cream. There's apple and cinnamon crumble. 
I see the chocolate fondant, which has uh, murdered many a chef on Master, master Chef. chef. They, we, the line we almost can't do anymore is mm. the road to the Master Chef title is littered <laughs> with the corpses of chocolate fondants. <laughs> Wait, it's just such a great normal edit point for Master Chef, where there's like the fork, and you're like, <gasps> "Is it going to is it run?" And we're all like, oh no. I watch I watch cookery shows like people watch sport when they're like, oh no, he's coming up with the ball into the thing. No. I watched it like that, but just with fun. Well, I'm delighted because it means, you know, I've got yes. an audience. Do you know, I might pretend I'm on MasterChef for just five minutes and ask for the fondant. Okay, let's have the fondant. 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 The fondant. Um, and uh, how about a pumpkin tart? With pumpkins, I think it's one of those ones. I like seeing foods used in other ways. Um, I want my big thing is whoever did the PR for kale and for cabbage, which is making Brussels sprouts, which has made, I mean, leaps and bounds in the last two years. I want them to do the PR for turnips. Love a turnip, Jay. You love a turnip. I bloody love a turnip. Now, what's your uh, favourite way? I mean, this is really what this whole... Yes. ...encounter has been working up to. Is turnips. Uh, is me finding out the Ashling B recipe for turnips. Go. Here it goes. Yeah. I love uh, chopping them up and putting them in with a mash. You have to have a floury spud, Jay. And as I point to you, I give myself a little bit of a giggle because sometimes in Ireland, spuds means balls. Does it? Yes. So you one one must have a floury spud. Um, and the floweriest ones are in Ireland and you don't really get very floury potatoes in Ireland. But we need to order. Well, I'm about to say, just quickly... Mashed potato with turnip with has a name. Turnip. Do you know what the name is? Oh, um, let me have a think. Can I have the chocolate fondant, please? Yeah. Which is buying me some time to think of it. And mm. I'll have the pumpkin tart. Of course. Uh, when I say I will have, we're both going to share. I mean, you probably didn't realise. Yes. That. Oh, no. I, and not a lot of people realise this about me. I will be having some of whatever you're having. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, shall I just tell you? No. Oh, okay. I want to guess. This is a great game. And for the listeners at home who oh, no, they're on, they're on the edge of their... They're <laughs> sitting on a train on the way home from work. <laughs> and everything has been leading up to the moment when Ashling tries to remember the name of mashed potato and turnip. A tornado. No, but that we might be able to rebrand it. Oh, because for me, that would be like, especially if you whipped it together, it would feel like a tornado. No. What is it, Jay? Clapshot. No way, it's not clap shot. If I said I had the clap shot last night, that would be a disgrace. Do you want to revive the in, the reputation of parsnips? I feel well? like parsnips are all are fine. Parsnip is like you're you're kind of the actor who's never out of work or in work. It's always the jo- it's the jobbing. It's vegetable. a jobbing actor who'll always turn up in a BBC crime drama. You know, you're like, ah, oh, he's doing all right actually, yeah. and he does a nice little turn there. Um, but do I think think about him during the evenings? No. So, um, which vegetable is the Judy Dench? The Judy Dench would have to be the potato. Uh, can t- can turn into anything. Can be elevated to uh, dizzying heights yeah. or be a very humble. Uh, thing um, I would say it has more vitamin C in it than you realise oh, um, well I've always thought that about Judy, Judy Dench, Dench. Yeah. she's, she's high people. in vitamin C <laughs> she's one of those people who I always have to stop before I say her full title Dame Judy Dench because I often say Jame Judy Dench Jame Judy Jame Judy so Jame Judy is, is mostly like I would say a potato there will always be room for potatoes and even with a dish if you're like but there's already rice have you tried adding some Dame Judy Dench you know, well, I'm, I'm hoping really that's our diary story right there mm-hmm. in, in the latest episode of Out to Lunch with Jay Ray and Ashling B. Referred to Jane <laughs> Judy, <laughs> D- D- Dame Judy Dench as a potato. But I hope they leave in the context 
Because if someone oh, described no, me care. as I a potato, I know you don't. <laughs> you just want, you're going to put that as a big quote without the context, aren't you, you journo? Um, <laughs> you disgusting, disgusting journo. Disgusting journey. I hope you're pleased with yourself. <laughs> you now travel a lot to the US. I generally, even when I wasn't working, was traveling a lot to America to try and make it, basically. Why I'm so grateful for the Netflix job is I've been going out auditioning for everything for about five years. Really? Yeah. yeah. Being, see- being seen for this? That- Seeing, not being seen, rejected, spending lots of money on flights and accommodation and Airbnbs and Ubers to and fro is every one, single... Is there one actor who keeps getting the part that you haven't oh, got? Oh, oh, Richard Gere. Is it? I am sick to death of going I'm into losing, the room losing and him parts being to playing. Richard Gere. Yeah. Oh. All right, so the important chocolate <gasps> fondant moment has arrived. Um, here I go. No, I'm fine, thank you. I'm about to... Ashling takes her spoon and delves into the fondant, and just as expected, ooh, look at that. Has it oozed? It has oozed, yes. Well, well that Oh, would, I love it. That would, that would result on said television show, with yes. me looking at Grace Dent in an approving way. And they'll smile at each other going, we're yeah. on to something we're here. We're on to something here. This kid's got something. They've probably got a passion for cooking. <laughs> Here's a question then with fondants. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the, you know in the bit where you're not criticising, but you're in the eight chefs against each other and someone makes a fondant yeah. and it's been sitting there. Well, how do you test that? I haven't had that situation. Mm. The one we sometimes get is they've made an ice cream and then it's left in the freezer. Ah, okay. So uh, that's how it happens. Mm. Do you know what I, I love about this? Mm-hmm. Not really the detail of the question. It's just the level of obsession. Oh yeah, you're, you're, you're properly you're properly dug in. I've you? always had a fascination by the background of of a thing and, and the rules of that sort of stuff and, and how much time something takes, even when people in reality TV are having an intensely private conversation and they don't want anyone to listen in. And I'm like, but there's a camera there. You're completely obsessed with Love Island, aren't you? Oh, yeah, 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 very much so. Why I love the show is, and it's become a little bit more product placement-y, aware of its own. Oh, yes. Mm, I have to give up some of this now, don't you? You don't want me to have any of that. No, I will. I bloody will. Um, Thank you. Oh, that's really lovely. Um... Why I love Love Island is because it's so, again, like we were talking about earlier on with privilege and the idea of loneliness and, you know, when there was a backlash against Meghan Markle, for example, saying that she found it really difficult and people were like, how could you find it difficult look at your life? Which is the craziest, least empathetic version of humanity there is. If someone was like, I find it really difficult when my yacht doesn't turn up in time, you're like, fair enough, that's a bell-end thing to say. But when it's someone talking about the human experience and finding being a mother difficult or the glare of the press difficult, she gets to have her difficulty without taking anything away from your experience or what you're going through. The idea that on Love Island, you've got all of these people who you might describe as perfect looking and you put all of these people into a house together and go, surely love is easy when you look a certain way. And they just suffer rejection and people going behind their backs and flirting with their friends and all the things that have happened to all of us and will continue to happen to all of us. That, for me, is what I watch. Do you ever worry about their mental health? About what happens to them? Yeah, massively so. It's a broader problem than just Love Island, people going on it, getting money, blah, blah, blah. It's about how empathetic we are generally, even online, um, how that is looked at. Mmm, pumpkin's nice. It is. It's it, that's a really interesting pumpkin tart because it's all about mm. the texture on the top, and there's a little bit of sugar crackling over it. 
Whereas for you, you've got your writing. Mm-hmm. Is writing a way of what the great Kathy Burke, who was uh, on a previous episode of Out to Lunch, described as a checkup <laughs> from the head up? I know what you mean. I love Kathy Burke so incredibly much. She's the most beautiful three-part documentary out. You can watch it on all four as well at the moment called All Woman. And she just looks at different people who you might think Kathy might live a very different life to that person. She, for example, has a good chat with a girl called Megan who came second or something in Love Island about two years ago and was blasted by the press for all these different things. And she held her own so well in that documentary and Kathy was really kind with her. And connecting each other by what we have in common we forget to do that sometimes but it can be uh, I think really important not just for society but for ourselves to do that we give ourselves a better time when we hate less it takes up so much energy to hate and be angry and for example what I try to do on my Instagram and different things like that there are loads of companies I think are absolutely disgusting um uh there are company heads who are put on websites as top businessmen and they just don't pay their tax, pay your bloody taxes, treat your workers fairly. But rather than, I suppose, populate my social media with anger, which I'll do every now and again, I try to maybe big up people who are doing good. And so rather than putting coal in the sort of hate train, is there any way you can sort of uh, big up places like the Brigade restaurant that are just doing good? Well, I have to say, though, in the brilliant way you brought it back round to the restaurant where we're sitting and having Ooh. lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I should give you back your fondant. I will take it back, actually. I know, I know, I know you will. And at which point I, I will I kind say, of only want the middle of it. Is that bad? Yeah, go for it. I will say, Ashling B, thank you very much for oh. letting me take you out to lunch. Jay Rayner, I bloody loved it. But I've, I've been such a fan and I love watching the show and I love reading your reviews and stuff. So I'm genuinely so happy to have gotten my fanny day out. <laughs> Well, it's a mutual appreciation society. Thank you. It's been fabulous. Thank you so much. I have to say, that's really good. That is really, really good. good. Having lunch with Ashling B was a roller coaster ride. She is an awful lot of fun. I do hope you enjoyed it too. If you do, please rate and review us. Um, give us five-star reviews because what's the point of doing otherwise? It makes me feel so much better about myself and it helps other people to find us. And that's that's what you want, isn't it? Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The theme music was written, arranged and performed by Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Jemima Rathbone. The producer is Selena Reem. And the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. So each one of these Out to Lunch records takes about two hours, but we only play you a perfectly edited 45, 50 minutes, which means there's lots and lots of stuff you haven't heard. So next time, it's all the crispy bits from around the edges of series two. Like this. I literally created an elaborate plan of how he could tell them that I died. I said, they're not going to look for me. They're not going to go searching for the body. Exactly. Just tell them I died. (laughs) 